Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Welcome, everyone, to another weekly debrief. Each week, Caitlin and I take on a case from a backlog of must-see films that either one of us or both of us have yet to see. In our debrief, we'll provide not only our opinion of the film, but we'll also discuss its significance and influence in both the film industry and society as a whole. Along the way, we'll also provide other fun trivia and insights on the film. Caitlin, what was our movie this week? So this week, we made our way to a space station circling a rather curious planet as we examined the strange phenomena in the 1972 film Solaris from director Andrei Tarkovsky. And this week, we do have a special guest with us. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dan Offenbacher. I'm a filmmaker and a musician based out of Baltimore, and I'm glad to be here today. We're glad to have you. Do you want to talk a little bit about your background with film? (laughs) I mean... I, uh, I've been uh, making films for over a decade now. Um, I have directed multiple shorts and I directed a feature film called House Within the Night that released in 2019. And um, that's currently where we're at right now. I mean, there's things in development that uh, we may hear about soon. Dan is also a producer on Ultra Black that I am also a producer on. Yeah. Very exciting stuff. So you being a new guest, we do need to update your case file because here we are cinema detectives. And I want to ask you what your favorite film is, but it's going to be in two parts. So first, I want you to tell us your favorite film that you think a lot of people have seen. What's like the mainstream pick? And then tell me a film that's your favorite film that is more of a hidden gem, one that you don't think a lot of people have seen. Okay, so my favorite film mainstream would be uh, Vertigo the Hitchcock film from 1958 um just haunting that's the best way to describe it like I just I can't every single time I watch it it just has this pull to it that makes me just want to just live in it and uh I can't stop thinking about it whenever I'm not watching it I'm thinking about it right now even um and I would say a lesser known one um well one that's this is one that's fairly well known but is underappreciated though it is getting a bit of a reappraisal is uh showgirls the paul verhoeven film from 1995 um it's often considered one of the worst films ever made um it's not it's actually um i believe it's a masterpiece at least it's a very highly stylized campy look at um show business and um sexual exploitation in las vegas and um it it's uh it's it's a it's a wild ride and uh thankfully you know people have come to their senses and realized that it's actually like a great film it blew my mind the first time i saw it i was like wow this is not a bad film at all like not even remotely now i haven't seen showgirls so that's gonna go on my list and Vertigo is one I know that we're going to tackle on the podcast at some point, so we'll have to have you back for that. I've seen it, but Bryant has not seen Vertigo before. Oh, I'd love to come back for that. Now, this week we are talking about Solaris. And before we do get into it, I do want to mention that the first part of our debrief will be spoiler-free. So we're not going to be talking spoilers until we get into the classified portion of our podcast, but we'll give you a warning when we get to that part. Okay. Now, Solaris is a film that... I don't think Bryant and I have ever seen before. I think this is a new one for both of us. I had started it at one point. Uh, I watched 
part of the beginning section. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I realized it was not the right time for it. I was not in the mood to watch what I was envisioning as a three hour long art film when I put it on. So I put it off, but I have been wanting to go back and watch it. So this was a good excuse to do that. And Bryant, was this one that was on your radar? I know you're a big fan of science fiction film. Yeah, this was on my radar for a while. I think I did the same thing you did actually at one point. I just, I put this on, I started it and I, I don't know, I don't really remember to, actually no, I think I played the trailer and I was like, nah, that's not what I'm feeling tonight. Uh, so yeah, it's it's been on my radar for a while though. And Dan, I know you've seen Solaris. It's, I know you rate it pretty highly on your letterbox, which is why I wanted you to come on to this episode. Have you seen it multiple times or? Um, I've seen it at least five or six times. I, I'm, okay. a, I'm a massive Tarkovsky fan. Gotcha. And when was the first time you watched it? Um, it's the first time I watched it. I turned it off about an hour in. And this was this was uh, about ten years ago, and um, uh. I decided to go back and uh, try it again um, about two years later. And um, there was a certain point about an hour in or so where it just like clicked, and I was just I was so moved by it, and like it was just like this. I get it now, and um, I whenever whenever I rewatch. Uh, Tarkovsky's filmography because I go through it um, every couple years basically just rewatch all of them and I always come back around to Solaris and it's you know it's it I it's it's easily like in my list of favorite films ever I would say along with a couple other films by Tarkovsky but I would say that uh, given that it was like my main introduction into his style and the first time I really connected with something that was so wildly different from what I was used to films being, you know, I, it holds a special place in my heart, I would say. Yeah, I get that. It also goes to show you that, like, sometimes you do need to give films second chances because sometimes you're just not in the right zone for it. Sometimes your attention span isn't in the right zone for it. So we definitely here on this podcast, uh, we recommend giving films multiple chances. Definitely. Now this is a f- yeah. Now this is a film that had pretty good critical acclaim. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1972, where it won the Grand Prix Special du Jury, and it was nominated for the Palme d'Or. It was also rescreened at Cannes in 2016 as part of its Cannes Classic screenings. And so it is a Soviet film. It initially received a limited release in the Soviet Union, where it received a lot of success. And it remained in limited screenings in Russia in limited runs for 15 years, selling more than 10 million tickets. It didn't premiere in the U.S. until 1976. And that version apparently had 30 minutes cut from the film. I don't know which 30 minutes, but I would be curious to know that. Uh, This was the first Soviet science fiction film to receive a wide international release. And it was the Soviet Union's official entry for Best Foreign Language Film for the Oscars, though it did not receive a nomination. It's often listed on Best Of list. Uh, Empire Magazine listed it as number 68 in its 100 Best Films of World Cinema in 2010. And The Guardian named it number 6 Best Sci-Fi and Fantasy Film of All Time in 2010 as well. It is also part of a Criterion Collection. There was originally a DVD released in 2002, and then there was a Blu-ray release in 2011. Brian, what were you able to find as far as the reception to this film? 
This has a 8.0 on IMDb, has a 92% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an 89% audience rating. It is in the 1001 Movies to Watch Before You Die, and it's in Robert Ebert's Great great Of list. And Dan, you have anything to add as far as what critics had to say about this movie and the reception of it? So I think I think one thing that um, that's interesting is that a lot of people at the time when it came out compared it to 2001 A Space Odyssey. And they were like, this is the Soviet response to 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I think that framed a lot of conversations about it. Um, but um, the truth is, is that it wasn't actually a response to 2001 A Space Odyssey. But um, there, but it's interesting because it, over time, it's kind of lived in that sort of shadow of being compared to 2001 A Space Odyssey um, when, you know, they're wildly different films. Now, just to give you guys a little bit of a summary about this film, the film follows character Chris Kelvin, a psychologist tasked with going aboard a space station that orbits an ocean planet called Solaris. The people on the space station have been experiencing strange phenomenon and what has been considered hallucinations, and Chris is sent to examine this and determine if it's worth keeping the space station around. When he arrives, there are only two others on the space station, or so he is told, and he soon begins to notice other guests appearing on the station, people and figures who should not be there, including a doppelganger of someone who was once close to him. Now, Danielle, we kind of got your general opinion of this already. Um, so, Brian, let's go ahead and see what you had to think about this film. I would agree with, uh, you know, this being my first time watching. I agree with Dan that this did take, it was like the hour mark that it really switched for me. The beginning is when I felt more of that, that art field feel with it. It was a lot of, like, there's just complete silence for, like, five minutes. Uh, it's just kind of a lot of, um, not not pandering, but just, just the, the camera sitting with somebody and there's even this like long, long drive that was in the film that that really should have been cut. I read why they kept it in, but still. And but man, when it gets going, when you finally when the when the movie really gets going, it, it's a beautiful film. Like it looks great. Uh, it's acted really well. There's just there's just a lot to it that make it a be- that makes it a beautiful film. And not saying I didn't enjoy that first hour at all. There's there is a uh, a video recording of a man and he's giving a speech of what he's seen on uh, Solaris before. And he, he's giving like a really good speech of what he has seen. And it really like this movie for a while has this mysterious feel to it. Actually, probably for the whole film. And they really build that up in the beginning. And it, it just helps out the tone for the rest of the film. So I I did enjoy this film. Uh, it was, you know, this, this just, yeah, this is a very well-made film. Yeah, uh, I agree. I had the same kind of experience with this film. The beginning is a little bit more tedious than the rest of the film. That's where you see, oh, this is an art film. But watching it, I don't think it was as much of an art film as I expected. Uh, Art film being, you know, the stereotypical, impenetrable, slow-paced film. And it really isn't like that for its entire runtime. And it really did switch with me when our character finally gets on the space station. And there's almost this sense of, uh, like, cosmic horror to this. There are guests that they call them visitors who are appearing on the station that shouldn't be on the station. And for me, 
that was genuinely terrifying. I think the only other time I felt that kind of creepiness and fear was in the movie Annihilation. Uh, and there really is a sense that, you know, you're looking out into space and someone's looking back at you. And so it goes on like that for a little bit, but then it switches again. And I think what we get after that is this more existential, uh, sentimental kind of film that is really reflective of memory uh, and about what it means to be human. That was really interesting to me. So I agree. I, I really like this film. Daniel, what were your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, you know, I like to think of it as like a ghost story or like a haunted house in space, basically. You know, um, it the the first hour definitely uh definitely can be a bit of a a bit of a test if you're not in the right mindset for it, and like it's it almost uh takes its time to like draw you in, you know, by kind of planting seeds of things that are interesting, but creating more of like the sensory experience, and then um, and so then by the time you're on the space station, there's so much mystery because. Okay, what what have they been seeing? What has been going on? Um, one, you know, he gets there and it's like just this rundown place. You know, it it's uh it's functional, but it's like empty basically. And um, and I find that the atmosphere there is really um, it really does create like a sense of dread, especially as things like keep kind of like passing in the background and stuff like that, and um i would say where the there's a lot of imagery in the first part of the film like the first hour that um shows up throughout on the space station like um uh there's tarkovsky had this intention of focusing on um earth from like a uh sense from like a sensory point of view and sort of the nostalgia for the earth you know and so there's a lot of these symbols and sounds and such that basically come up again on the spaceship, say in like some more artificial ways. And um, it's so it definitely picks up the pace more once it gets going um, on the spaceship. And I found that the moment where it like really starts to kick in is that first night on the on the ship when he wakes up and there's this shot. I'm not going to spoil it right now. There's this one shot and it looks totally different from everything that's come before, like the lighting. And uh, there's this music swelling, this creepy music. And um, that's where it really starts to pick up, I would say. And um, it does kind of go, it does kind of go through different sections, you know, and they're kind of punctuated mm -hmm. by different, yeah. by different moments. Um you know, so you've got like the first part of he's on uh the first part he's on Earth. Um, this is the world we're in, this is the future. Let's drive around Tokyo for ten minutes. Um, then we're in space. Um what is going on on this spaceship? Then, you know, our skeptical main character, you know, Kelvin, he's all like, Oh, you know, this is this is just like this is explainable. And then it doesn't take long for him to be like completely terrified basically of what's going on around him uneasy. Mm -hmm. And then uh, something happens and shifts it again into a more, into that direction where it starts to get more um, sentimental yeah, and sincere and mm -hmm. emotional. Um, it's like, there's this 
there's like this there I would say there's this warmth throughout the whole film, but it feels kind of cold for a while. And then once it starts to really kick in, um there's like this really strong sort of aching longing feeling that kind of uh takes over, I would say, and uh drives it forward towards the end. Um yeah, I I uh I definitely go through different um different uh feelings throughout the different sections of the film because the first hour is really like uh all the stuff on earth i mean like that whole scene watching the video and it's like 20 minutes long of just the the guy his name's burton uh going over his experience on the planet and what he saw and everything and um i think it's an interesting way to relay information to the audience um but it's definitely very uncompromising yeah (laughs) and uh that's i mean that's the way to describe tarkovsky in general is that he's very uncompromising and he actually got in a lot of trouble with uh the uh with the uh government because the studios and the soviet union were actually uh run by the government um were state funded at least and so and he was a christian and he was and he had a very strong philosophy about film as an art form and he was very stubborn and so it was really difficult for him to get films made because he would have all of these ideas and they would be like no you need to make this more accessible to people you need to cut this part you need to cut this part because people are not going to be paying attention to this or say maybe that like you would think you would just assume oh well you know he's they don't like him being like subversive politically but like really um I, I read his diary and there's a whole list of like 39 things that they wanted him to cut out of the film that were just like cut out the driving scene, spend less time on earth. And he's just like, no, which, you know, rubbed, it, it got him into a lot of trouble over time. Yeah. Um, I think the main thing I saw in the article was that he was asked to cut some of the religious imagery and I think it said he did a little bit, but I mean, like you said, he does seem like a very uncompromising director. And I think the cuts were minimal. Yeah, a lot of long takes, too. So he, you know, he kind of built the whole film in a way where uh, it wasn't like easy to just chop it all up. And so I kind of wonder what, like, what the U.S. version was like. You yeah, know? I am very curious with that cut. Maybe <laughs> like, it was the driving scene. It was that 30 minutes. <laughs> Felt like yeah, it. <laughs> like let's. They're like cut the driving scene. Um, <laughs> yeah, the interesting thing about the driving scene was that they shot it in Tokyo, and originally they wanted to do uh, Tarkovsky wanted to do the whole thing in Tokyo, but for funding reasons and stuff, they were the uh, the committee was like, no, no, you're not going to shoot the whole film in Tokyo. <laughs> um, he still got his way in some way. I mean, yeah, put a lot of a lot of footage of Tokyo in there, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think there's there's ways to justify his choice there, but I think that anyone who says that he should have cut it um, has the right idea. But <laughs> I I like it, but also it's 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 really long and slow, and mm-hmm. um, but I don't know it it has it has a the way it ends is there's like a punctuation to it, you know. It ends yeah. and that cut at the end of that at the end of that sequence um is powerful honestly 
Like I, I find that because it cuts basically into silence and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And now the beginning part in general, I thought was interesting and I didn't really think about it as I was watching, um, but it really introduces uh, this family relationships, his relationship with his father, uh, even a little bit of his mother is hinted at here in the beginning. And I think that knowing what comes later in the film, I'd be interested in watching that portion again. There's a lot of seeds planted in the beginning for uh mm-hmm. for things that come up later. And I mean really it's like it's like this uh poetic imagery more than anything else, very uh direct, like, you know, not plot twisty sort of things. You know, it's just like um the thing things just uh things just come up again, you know, and uh I I do think it's interesting the uses of photographs and uh you know the that's all because I mean there's there's a you know there's another major figure that's introduced through a photograph at the beginning and um so you know it's not just uh, his parents Yeah and I liked that you mentioned before that he the idea of it is that looking back on the earth in a sense of nostalgia and I think that's also kind of it's accentuated through the photographs, but it's also accentuated through a lot of the art references that are in the film. Um, the space station itself is covered in paintings, uh, mm-hmm. and one of them in particular, which was Peter Bruegel's Hunters in the Snow, it's an art piece that is heavily lingered on in the film. And I did get that sense of nostalgia as we looked at it through his eyes. Exactly. Especially since there's like visual, um, there's like visual uh parallels to it that are it it's almost like the painting gets melded into memory and mm-hmm. imagery um um i think i think one of the big driving themes of the film ultimately is that um we try to understand the universe we can go deeper into space we can maybe discover something out there but the deeper we go, it just brings us back. You know, we we end up we end up constantly looking backwards at ourselves. Yeah, there's a really good line in this film. Uh, I don't think this is a spoiler, but the line is, "We don't need other worlds; we need a mirror." And I think that was something that I saw as being particularly timely um, right now with like the whole billionaire space race going on. I found that to be particularly uh, poignant. Exactly. And I feel like there the way that space travel is presented in the film is with the sense of like first of all there's like a bureaucratic force behind it and there's this sense of um of you know constantly looking forward but not really reflecting on the ramifications of it and but like not the societal ramifications but the ramifications of individual humans, you know. What does it do to us to know more? And what did you think about the performances in this film? I I think that the real standout is uh, Natalia Bondarchuk. Or let me let me pull up my notes because I wrote a phonet I wrote a phonetic pronunciation for it. <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to get it right. Natalia Bondarchuk. Um, she plays a special guest. That she appears. plays a special guest. Yeah, um, I think she's the standout performance. But um, uh, I would say the uh, 
I would say that the lead who plays uh Chris um Donatas Bonjonis um he has an interesting presence I think um because I mean he 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 has like this heaviness about like that he carries with him you know like he uh you can tell from the beginning that he has experienced something that has uh really weighed on him and you can tell that he's uh skeptical but there's also this sense of wonder uh this curiosity or maybe even dread about knowing more mm-hmm. and i mean it gets once he gets to the space station i mean it just gets so much stronger and i think that he does a great job of kind of the layers kind of get peeled back and he almost like the sense of him like becoming broken down and um i mean the rest of the cast too i mean um um there's a uh, Nikolai Grinko who plays his father he's a he's in multiple Tarkovsky films um okay so it's like whenever i see him in a film i'm like oh hey it's Nikolai Grinko you know mm-hmm. and um and uh Anatoly Solonitsyn who plays uh Sartorius is also another um another like Tarkovsky favorite yeah and um and i mean there's and um one that actually really stuck out to me on this viewing more so than in previous viewings was uh was a uh, Yuri Yarvit who uh played um Snout I think he was my favorite you know he there's there's a lot of sensitivity to his performance I think this yeah. um he it's very uncertain what where he stands with things you know what his uh what he is trying to communicate really because he's very mysterious and also kind of uh there's like a sort of snarkiness or i don't know like there's this like jaded quality i guess to him of he's just like oh yeah those are the guests just you know yeah snout (laughs) was my favorite uh performance in this uh chris for me i think was the my least favorite performance just because sometimes i thought he was underacting a little bit seemed a little nonchalant at times when I thought that he should be a little bit more reactive. Yeah, I was going to say quickly, like, um, so Tarkovsky wrote in one of his books uh, that I read that um, he didn't he didn't like the actor who played uh, Chris that much. Like he like he ah, was like, okay. like, he, like he was like, like he was like he did a good job, but uh, he would did not uh, really they, they did not really have very good chemistry as like actor and director the type of direction he needed was not the type of direction that Tarkovsky would give his actors. Okay. Like, um, it happens. Yeah. Tarkovsky was a bit like hands off with stuff. Like he basically let the actors do their thing mm-hmm. and, uh, tried not to impose too much on them. Um, but that actor, he, he wanted a lot of direction. He wanted to be walked through things a bit more. Okay. So also his dialogue is dubbed. And uh, like the actor is Lithuanian and his and he recorded it. He recorded it like they filmed it in Russian, but he um, but his accent was too strong. So they had a uh, Russian actor do the uh, uh, dub all of his dialogue. So 
maybe that has something to do with the, that with might, the it might. flatness. I, I'm not I think sure. it's more for me was the the facial expression sometimes. Like I said, just yeah. a little bit a little bit too nonchalant about things, a little too calm <laughs> in the situation, but I don't think I would be calm. Yeah, there was definitely one thing that happened where it's like, all right, you understand that there's a certain number of guests here and you just saw this person come out. Why are you not? I'm not saying you got to freak out, but he was going with it a little too well. And I know I talked about it in the It's a Wonderful Life. Like, I don't like when people are constantly fighting it. Like, at some point, you got to get on board. But he got on board a little too quickly, though it didn't bother me. Like, once it started going, I just I just moved past that one scene. Uh, the other performances were were good, uh, were actually great. And yeah, he probably has the weakest performance, but I think that does play into his character a little bit more because uh, his character, I don't know, he, like I say, he's more on board. He's more like like they say, he's more of an accountant accountant than a scientist. And I believe he's actually his official position is psychologist. So he just seems more. Um, yeah, I, I just think that it fits with his character. Uh, is is uh Isabella? That's her first name. The the actress. Um, which the one? the main one, the guest. Uh, uh Natalia. The actress Natalia. Natalia. Oh my god, Isabella! I, was, I think I was playing somewhere. Uh, Natalia is fantastic. She she helps like the complements the atmosphere in this movie. All of her, she has the most emotion, and it's gonna it's gonna give you the most heartfelt moments. And also some of the most eerie moments as well. Yeah, she has that. She has that that uh, ghostly quality that uh, yeah. the guests that the guests all have. But obviously, it goes a little bit deeper for her. Um, but um, she has a, she she shows a lot of range. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting how much of a uh, emotional center she really is to the whole film because like I, I i i love her she's just like such a she's just such a an engaging character um and uh and i mean she 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 like steals every scene she's in let's talk a little bit about the filmmaking techniques in here brian what did you think about those i love the editing that was the main thing that I saw technically that I just, uh, it just, it really kicks off. The editing really kicks off again when they're in the space station. Like the movie switches a tone and so does this editing. And I thought the two just worked excellent together. And then it was well shot too. So like when they go, the editing, putting these two shots together is just, it worked phenomenally. I wasn't sure what to expect with camera movement in this film because I'm not familiar with his style. I think this is the first movie of his I've seen. Uh, he likes a pan. He likes a good pan. <laughs> yeah, seventies yeah. liked a good pan. That I did. I did write good, that in my notes. Stable. <laughs> it's the seventies leather pan. And zooms, like not not just dolly mm-hmm. with zooms. There's, There's a lot of zooms. Oh wait, no, my, my bad. Yeah. I mix it up. No, yeah, the zooms is what I put in my note. I was like, man, they love to zoom in, like. You can't just get one character from afar. You gotta get it. You gotta get the character from afar, and then you know you're going in. Yeah, Tarkovsky had a very uh, unique um, idea about uh, film language. He did not really like the standard uh, montage style of editing. You know what we tend to expect in films, where like you have different shots that are disconnected and then you edit them together and that creates the meaning 
um, he thought that that was unrealistic. He was like, you know what cinema does uniquely compared to every other art form is it captures time. You know, music is time-based, but it's about like the erasure of time almost. But film is the only art form that's able to uh, take an actual period of time, capture it. And uh, so then that can express internal states. So his idea was uh, he did a lot of long takes and stuff. And it wasn't just to be showy. It was because uh, there's there's an idea that runs within that. There's a um, there's an internal state that he's trying to express. So the way that the shots are linked together is through the uh, pressure of time within a shot. So um, that sort of stuff happens very intuitively. And then when it cuts, you know, the next shot is, um, you know, n- notice how there's like a lot of shots that cut to like um, the Solaris Ocean, you know, or it cuts to um, some like object. You know, it's like this poetic linkage. And he he claims that, you know, oh, there's he, he was against like obvious symbolism, but um he's he's kidding him he was kidding himself yeah, there's a lot I of think obvious there, symbolism there's some in here um well he also said that like he knows that he's also a hypocrite too and that mm-hmm. uh, obviously he's <laughs> he was a character to say the least <laughs> and um so if you so i mean you know to compare it to his other films which i mean you know we can't really go into much here um this is more uh traditional in its okay. styling um in terms of the length of the takes um because i mean like in some of his other films like stalker for example most of that film is like 10 minute long uh long takes that are often just the only move camera movement it's like a zoom that happens really slow or like a dolly or a crane even um but in this you know it's much more dynamic mm-hmm. um but the motivation in all of it is really capturing the sense of time that the characters are experiencing so things slow down they get a little bit faster they jump because the mind wanders you know within a space add those together you know you create sensory uh experience through like the use of the sound and um that's where all of the uh meat of it is is in how all of that stuff comes together. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the shots and the takes, they felt lingering to me. Um, Lingering, but deliberate. I I feel that he directed us to what he wanted us to see. I mean, I guess that's every every filmmaker, but I feel like I got that sense uh, very explicitly here. I didn't feel so much wandering personally, um, but that might just be how I approached it. It... I, I think what's interesting is it's the times where the camera follows um a character and mm-hmm. then the and then the character goes out of frame and the camera mo- continues to move on its own into a different part of the space. Yeah. You know, it it's um on one level it's like, oh, this feels like we are um voyeurs almost, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely the vibe I got. Well, I can't compare it to other films of his. Just looking at everything that you know he put together in in his direction and everything technically in the performances, and you know we all agree that it does it 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 does feel haunting, and it reminded me of kind of a 
I think two prominent things in 70s horror was uh, the atmosphere. You had a lot of eeriness in a lot of 70s movies, and you also had uh, a lot of like um, like stalker entities. If you look at Halloween and Alien, uh, Omen as well, and as far as the atmosphere, you have uh, like Don't Look Now, The Tenant, and where I think like, you know, we talked about Don't Look Now before, Caitlin, how we both... We didn't care for that movie, but I think the <laughs> I think the atmosphere and like the eeriness that they were trying to go for in this in that movie is something that this movie did really well. Yeah, and I think also like when you look at the the stalker entity, you all uh, you have the planet. Like the planet is just always there. It's not behind you, but you know it's like it's just it's just in the air because it somehow it's just operating all around you. So it's a it's a constant force of again it, it, it gives this really nice haunting feel to it that actually yeah uh, someone said dread before it gives some genuine dread to it yeah it's interesting because essentially this is kind of like a first contact film uh when you're talking about like sci-fi first contact with aliens but here the planet itself is its own life form that you feel that presence that's constantly reaching out to humanity uh to the humanity on the space station and there's a language here uh between the planet and the space station that is talked about but i think you really see that language by that kind of voyeuristic presence yeah it's yeah it's definitely unique one thing one thing about the planet too is that the whenever it cuts away to the shots of the ocean moving it 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 it's very it often feels like it's bookending something it's like a transitional thing or like um you know if say we could abstract it a lot and say oh it's like a greek chorus you know it's like commenting on mm-hmm. what's going on yeah. it's comment you know the shifting of the ocean is the shifting of um the of uh what's going on in the in, uh, on the station you know the um it marks it marks almost like these little episodes basically within the story um and uh because at the end of the day you know it's like the ocean is basically controlling everything that happens you know and the ocean is the observer yeah definitely now one thing i didn't really understand with this film is the color in this film uh, the use of color or lack of color or there's like a sepia desaturated tones at some point uh, and I didn't always follow why that was being done so Tarkovsky didn't like color um, he thought that it imposed too much uh, too much uh, meaning onto the film basically like he felt that black and white was the closest to reality because when you see something in black and white, you're not trying to read into it. He felt that with color, you would be reading into it. But obviously, you know, they did a lot of the film in color. Um, part of the switching that happens is in this film specifically. So in a bunch of other Tarkovsky films, really just specifically the ones he made after Solaris, um, he very deliberately mixed together black and white and color. Um, but in this film specifically, what actually happened was, is that they ran out of color film stock. There was a shortage mm-hmm. of, of color. So they just used black and white. And, oh. uh, I, and I think, I think it creates an interesting effect. 
uh the first time i watched the film i was like why is this happening you know why is it going yeah. between black and white and color but um you know the the more i watch it i kind of like to think about it as like of um being sort of the blurring of memory and um and the present reality um because not a lot of black and white stuff is happening on the space station specifically you know most of it is most of that's in color um but uh the stuff on earth a lot of that is in like a blue toned black and white and i mean the uh the a lot of that uh infinitely long car driving scene you know that's bluish um there's scenes at the uh at the house at his uh father's house that are you know that is um blue um there is a moment later on in the film that in which it almost feels like that sort of black and white evokes a sense of home yeah that's true i can feel that yeah i was trying to look I think it was more of the shots in the space station that were in black and white that threw me off a little bit more. And that's when I was really like, okay, why are we doing this? <laughs> so I was racking my brain for meaning a bit, but I-, I wasn't really sure what the definitive answer was. So thank you for that. <laughs> and I mean, ultimately, I will say that in this film specifically, other Tarkovsky films, I would say that there's more of a clear understanding of this of the switches. In this film, mm-hmm. I honestly don't think that there's much of a reason behind it, other okay. than the other than the shortage of the color stock, gotcha. basically. So then let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about the influence that this film had in in film and just in general. And Brian, do you want to start us off with that? So there's a couple films. The Fountain uh, from 2002. That one has people have seen some influence with that. Uh, there have been similarities to Inception and Interstellar. Uh, however. Christopher Nolan, he hasn't confirmed that himself, but you can you can see it in there, uh, especially with Interstellar. Oh, for me, I see it, especially with Inception. I saw Inception more than Interstellar. I think there's even a shot in Solaris that as I was watching it, I was like, that's, that's Inception. That's a shot that was in Inception. So obviously that took it from here, almost shot by shot. Uh, was it the table? Yes. Yeah, yep. I, I saw the table and I thought Inception as well. Yeah, I was like, wow, okay. Uh, this also has a... Oh, my bad. The Fountain was 2006. In 2002, there was a remake of this by Steven Soderbergh. Is it Soderbergh? Soderbergh. Yeah, Soderbergh. Yeah, he, however, I heard that this one, his remake was, was different. One is an hour shorter, and it also it focuses more on a message of love than an existential crisis. And the so Hamaguchi, uh, who directed Drive My Car, which I believe was mm. two, uh, 2022. Rinosuke Hamaguchi. Yeah, that w- which was a big movie that year. I still need to watch it. The university he attended to, the, his teacher, they gave him a pro, uh, a what's it called? They gave him an assignment to rewrite Solaris, uh, which he did. That's and interesting. Yeah, wow. and actually, he was he wrote the best one. He so he he won uh, for having the best assignment, and later that that teacher worked with him on another film. Now the Solaris, they actually ended up filming it at that university between thirty students, including Amiguchi. However, 
they can't distribute the film because they never got the rights to the film. So you can only it can only be played at that university. That's the only way. I don't know if you go to that university, if you can see it yourself uh, or if, you know, they just kind of passing it around uh, between the the alumni there. But yeah, that's uh yeah, that was a connection between between that. So I don't know, maybe one day that film will come out. Maybe one day they'll get the rights to it. Maybe Amaguchi becomes even more popular, which it seems like he is on a road to becoming even more popular. We may be able to see that one day. Yeah, I'm trying to think about his style. Um, he's another director, but I would say I'm thinking more of his um, film, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. He definitely is a character that goes for more realism in his films and, and tries to capture realistic conversations. He's very dialogue-heavy filmmaker. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm trying to figure out if there's an influence there, but I, I haven't seen Drive My Car or the other film uh, too recently. Some things to say about influence with this one. Um so, uh, Nolan is actually a uh, Tarkovsky fan. He's mm-hmm. talked about it before. Um, that's that's one thing. And when I watched Interstellar, I'm I'm not really a, a fan of it, but um, there were points in Interstellar where I was like, where I was like, oh, this kind of this kind of they're doing like a Solaris thing. Um, another movie that's really influenced by it is Event Horizon. Yes, um, yeah, I noticed that while very, I was watching. Yeah, very. In fact, there are parts in Event Horizon where it seemed like they were really going in like a Solaris direction, and I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." And then it kind of, it kind of got off the rails a little bit. But yeah, um, I kind of want to go back and watch Event Horizon because I didn't like it, but I liked, I liked it in theory. Theoretically, I really liked Event <laughs> yeah. Horizon, and then it, it went somewhere. <laughs> I think they had some good things that they squandered a bit. Yeah. Um. So the 2002 remake by Soderbergh. I actually recommend checking that out. I actually think it's a great film. Um, part of it is that it's not just a remake of the of this film. It's also a readaptation of the novel that it's based on. Um, so, so Solaris was a novel published in 1961 by uh, Stanislaw Lem. Yeah, Lem. I wrote out a phonetic pronunciation, but I couldn't get to my notes in time. But um, and uh, I haven't read that yet. I actually have a copy, but I haven't read it yet. Um, the yeah, the Soderbergh version is good. I it's not as good. I I prefer the Tarkovsky film, but also it stands alone really well. Actually, um, okay. it's a version you can watch with people who don't like subtitles. You know, like uh, I watched it with my mom, <laughs> for example. Um, it's it's interesting. Uh, there are a lot of filmmakers today that are heavily inspired by Tarkovsky and kind of take off his style. And um, Solaris, I would say, is one of his films that definitely has uh, seeped into um, seeped into the culture a lot mm-hmm. over time. And I, part of that is because it's probably the least uh, Soviet of his films, where there is not as much of a relation to Russian history okay. or society. Um, you know, it's 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 more directly about just like space and stuff like that you know it's not about uh the government so that's you know that's part of why it's actually taken on it, it was able to spread so much around the world is because it was it's it's easy enough to translate it to other cultures yeah and i think there's a lot of other sci-fi films that you can also say uh are influenced by this melancholia for one annihilation another one 
Um, and for me, something that I thought was interesting and kind of timely is I just recently watched a film by uh, Carlos Regadas. He's a Mexican director that is heavily, heavily influenced by Tarkovsky. And all of his films uh, really pay homage to the works of Tarkovsky. And in Solaris in general, uh, one of his films, Post Tenebras Lux, contains shot that references the highway driving scene. Um, so that was a filmmaker that I just recently started delving into. Um, I do want to watch more of his films and I wanted to watch more of Tarkarski's films. Um, but I thought that was, was timely for me to have watched that. All right. Let's talk a little bit then about why this film was significant, whether it was significant for cinema or significant culturally in its time. So this is just regarded as one of the best and influential science fiction films. This did have a celebrated 50th anniversary uh, in 2022, you'll see like a lot of articles about it now uh, that were published from that year. So a lot of people were talking about it when that 50th anniversary came up. This, uh, like Dan mentioned, this is the most widely seen of his uh, of his films, and it is probably the most accessible. However, it's uh, it's his least favorite, at least from what from what I was reading, it's his least favorite movie. Which I feel like there's another. It's been like other directors like that who they're like, yeah, this is my most successful, but I don't like it. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because Tarkovsky was noted as not being a fan of sci-fi in general. He was very wary of falling into the trappings of that genre. And like you said, he has a preference for cinema that really captures the human experience. And he saw sci-fi as more of commercialization, uh, escapism. And so he wanted Solaris to be above that, but I think that he still was upset with some things with Solaris. It still fell into some of those genreisms. Yeah. But that's kind of, I mean, if you want a unique film, that's the kind of person you get to make a sci-fi film. I mean, some of the best sci-fi movies out there aren't really that, that sci-fi heavy, you know, it's just, yeah. they go with a minimalist approach and, and they go more for the, the storytelling. Same with horror as well. It's interesting. It's not even his last sci-fi film. He no, made, it's he not. <laughs> he, he made Stalker in uh, 1979. And that is, I would say that's even more sci-fi and like very directly sci-fi in its approach, even though he was trying to escape that, you know, like on Solaris. And the reason why it was, why Solaris was his least favorite is because it was so difficult to get it made. It, mm. uh, like I said, I read his diaries. It took them two years to get it off the ground. Um, because there was constant challenges with trying to get the funding because he wanted to do all sorts of, uh, different things. He originally wanted two thirds of the film to take place on earth and he wanted the last third to be on the space station, which, uh, I think is, <laughs> thank God, thank God <laughs> he didn't do that. Um, I probably would have liked it, but like, um, we wouldn't have what we have now. No. Um, yeah, sometimes producers make the right call. Yeah. I mean, he, the circumstances for this were definitely a little tricky uh, because the producers were, uh, were uh, the state film committee. And so they wanted something more uh, what he described as bootlicking or um, they wanted something more commercial that people would be able to, you know, be able to more easily digest. Um, and his insistence to not do that, you know, kind of didn't really uh didn't really uh mesh well and uh he after this film he just had constant battles and stuff with the uh film committee until he eventually was exiled out of the Soviet Union 
and uh, made his last two films in uh, Italy and then Sweden. And then he died in Paris uh, the same year that he finished his last film. Uh, so uh, Solaris kind of has an interesting place in his career. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting he made a film in Italy because I was reading on IMDb. I couldn't find where to verify it. But it said that this had uh, this had an Italian censorship visa and it had a number with it. So I'm not sure what that means that this was also censored by Italy or Italy like gave it the the approval. But Italy at that time also had censorship laws. Yeah, I'm, I'd assume that's at least like their equivalent of like a ratings board sort of thing. Uh, in the know. 70s, no, a lot of because uh, when were video nasties, Caitlin? That was 80s. Yeah, that was 80s. So I mean, we're still having video nasties. It's only like a. Uh, I'll have to see about the Hayes Code when that ended. But censorship in film like went further than just the the ratings boards. So I wouldn't be surprised if Italy as well, uh, especially because also Italy is really tied to their religion. Uh, so you have like I'm I'm sure during their times of censorship, you couldn't say anything about the Catholic Church. You couldn't portray them in a certain way. So what else did you able were you able to find for significance, Brian? I kind of cut you off there. No, no, that's all. Oh, uh, the last one is something Dan brought up, which is just the continuing conversation with 2001: Space Odyssey. It's like you can't talk about this film without talking about or finding somebody talking about 2001. I don't know if that's going to be the same uh, when we watch 2001, if I'm just going to keep hearing about Solaris. But every time I try to read about this film, 2001 just kept sneaking in. We might not hear it as much since 2001 came first. Um, But I think also part of that's just because Tarkovsky wasn't a fan of 2001. Uh like me <laughs> but that's okay <laughs> i i think that the so i mean the comparison really came up after the uh, release at can um it became this sort of thing of all the international film critics and stuff were like oh you know it's just it's like it's like a soviet version of 2001 which i think does a disservice to both films because yeah he didn't like 2001 and you can't just look at this as a response to 2001 because one that was mm-hmm. already in, it was already in the works before that he wasn't trying to answer to it you know his his you know he 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 had different interests in terms of like what sort of story to be told um because he was like i he wanted to focus on humanity and he wanted to focus on earth and uh 2001 is sort of about humanity but it's also about technology you know it's about it's about all sorts of other things like that plus it's more special effects heavy you know and this 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 yeah. is a film where there's like not a lot going on with the special effects aside from the um from the planet the shots of the planet which uh, apparently was acetone with uh silver and aluminum powder interesting i wonder if also i was like saying this is the soviet union 2001 because it came from the Soviet Union, not in like yeah. a lot of people just <laughs> had much, criticism yeah. about Soviet Union. So anytime they do something like, oh, you guys are just don't trying to do this. You guys are just trying to get an upper hand here. Uh, so, yeah, I wonder if like if it was a non-controversial uh, country that made it, if it was still had the same comparisons. Yeah, especially during the 70s. Yeah. There, There's just a lot of weird misunderstandings and con- and ideas of the Soviet Union in general. And uh, that has tainted so many conversations about a lot of uh, Soviet cinema. Mm, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, you can't watch it without thinking, is this propaganda? 
it's it's complicated. I took a whole course on Russian film once, and uh, Soviet the Soviet Union man they had some of the most innovative filmmakers doing really incredible stuff. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it all just turns into a sort of mess of like, oh, it's the Soviet Union, so it's propaganda, and that's bad. It's mm. like it's 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 a little more complicated than yeah. that. Dan, is there anything else you had for the significance of this film? Well, I feel like it's almost been said already, but basically this was really uh, the film that had, that defined Tarkovsky's name internationally. And um, a lot of people, this is a lot of people's first Tarkovsky film. And um, I think it also definitely changed the uh, cinematic language of sci-fi in terms of yes. the sound design, you know, the use of like the synthesized music um the um the atmosphere and also like the really um the uh headiness of it yeah brian had messaged me kind of making a joke is this elevated sci-fi like we have elevated horror and i think it's true that this is kind of a pioneer in that sort of atmospheric sci-fi um more character study type sci-fi or a pioneer, I would say. Definitely. So let's talk about who we would recommend this movie to. Uh, of course, that would be either a general audience or cinephiles, or if you want to get a little bit more niche and talk about uh, different demographics or um, genre fans, we can talk about that as well. Just who in general would you recommend this to? Definitely cinephiles. Yeah, this is not a general audience film. This is it's going to be tough to sit down somebody who just... They're, that are not in a film like that and have them sit through this movie, uh, especially just getting them through that first hour. Is I mean, even if you get them through that first hour, even if you promise them that things are going to switch up, I mean, it doesn't switch up to where things get like really, uh, really stimulating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would just recommend this for for cinephiles. Nobody really else. Uh, maybe they uh, like Dan said, uh, watching the Soderbergh version. Uh, that could be that could be a movie that they that that would be better for them. And from what I've seen, it has good, rev- it has decent reviews, and it has a great cast. Who is it besides Clooney? Viola Davis. Oh. Okay. And one other person I'm forgetting that I was like, oh okay. Oh, okay. Dan, who do you think? Who would you recommend this to? I would, I would definitely say cinephiles. Um, I, I tend to believe that you can actually get people into a lot of things that you wouldn't expect them to. Um, but. I think there almost is like a barrier of entry with this because um, you have to be able to get on that wavelength. And um, not, and I, I would say a lot of general audiences are not really um, interested in that. Um, but I also don't think it's like a super inaccessible film. Ultimately. Agreed. Yeah. You know, like, like I think, I think there, it has, it gives off this impression that it's not very accessible, but I think that it's actually pretty straightforward and I think that the that it's uh, emotionally rich in a way where I think it can at least get under your skin a bit. Um, but you know, it's it's a little difficult to get into. Um, so c- cinephiles are definitely more of the ideal audience, I would say. Yeah, I definitely agree with you completely. I agree, cinephiles, but it's not an inaccessible film. Uh, like I said, I was really expecting it to be more tedious, inaccessible art film. I I don't think it's that, and I think a lot of the symbolism is pretty straightforward. I think it's more accessible than 2001. I agree. 
Oh, I definitely you know? agree. And I mean, a lot of people love 2001. So, <sighs> yeah. you know, I'm just saying like, I'm just saying like Solaris is not, doesn't have to be this uh, unattainable thing. Yeah. I'm definitely, I'm getting a little bit more excited now for whenever we do finally watch 2001 because Bryant hasn't seen it. Uh, I watched it in college and I wasn't a fan, but I have complicated feelings of Kubrick style in general. So, but I'm kind of curious to rewatch it now. I had to watch it like five times before I got it. Ugh, yeah. Yeah. Like, like I, I kept trying to watch it multiple times and I was just like, you know, something about this is not really working for me. And then I watched, and then there was just this one time I watched it where I was just like completely in love with it. It's gotcha. not my favorite. It's not, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Kubrick, but it's definitely like one of his, uh, one of his, uh, showiest films. Okay. More of an eyes wide shut fan, but you know. I still have to watch that one. <laughs> That's a yeah. good one. So let's go ahead and move on to the classified portion of our podcast. Now we're going to be talking spoilers. So we can talk spoilers. We can talk about the guest in the room on the space station. <laughs> but we're going to be talking spoilers. So if you haven't seen this yet, uh, give us a pause. Go watch it and come back to us because we're also going to be talking about whether or not we think this film holds up. And we're going to give our overall rating on the film as well. So where do you guys want to start with spoilers? Do you want to talk about uh, our guest? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the best place to start. I thought, well, one, the actress was phenomenal on it uh, with the with performance. And I just, I really liked her character of all the people that he could have had a guest with. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a cliche, the dead wife, the ghost of the dead wife, the apparition of the dead wife. Actually, I just looked at the poster for this movie. And yeah, she's definitely like an apparition or a ghost in there. So that's, yeah, right on the nose. But I, I still think that they had a complicated relationship and I like that when they were talking about what happened, how she died uh, with, with the suicide. And, you know, usually with these dead wife stories, it goes like, I didn't appreciate you enough while you were alive. But now that, you know, your dead wife, I, you know, I want to show that how much I truly loved. But with him, it got even a bit more complicated because he was like, I didn't love you. Like he's he's not even saying like. He's saying, I didn't love you while you were alive. And he doesn't and he doesn't understand why. But when she was gone, that's when he fell in love with her. So it's he it's not even so much like he's trying to make up for lost time. It's just that he's in love with her. Even if it's not really her, he's in love with her. And I think that gives even more motivation than him just trying to make up for something. Because uh, I, I think he does have some guilt, but it doesn't seem like he's he, he completely blames himself for for her suicide. And I think also the way they they approached that was interesting and say in the you know the three days that had passed, which I wonder if that's a biblical reference. But yeah, probably. <laughs> you know when he, when he did discover like he at first he didn't want to bring truth to her words or like he didn't want to give him any weight, so he didn't he just didn't show up the first couple of days, and then that's when he finally went and saw that she had already died. I thought that I thought that was a more complex conversation than what we usually see in that scenario which is funny because again this was 1972 but from years you know forward from this we'll get those cliches of oh i didn't you know you died just the day that i made muffins for you you never got to taste the muffins <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know i think i think the thing that uh really makes it interesting is the fact that um is that um one you know the first time she, the first time he sees her 
he sees her as he remembers her. So the photo, you know, she's dressed exactly like the photo, but also there is the needle mark on her arm. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the last time he saw her was, you know, when she was dead, he found her body and she had the needle mark on her arm. And it's interesting how the duplicate, um, her name's Hari, by the way, yeah, <laughs> duplicate Hari. Hari, the, the duplicate Hari, dead wife. um, you know, she, she, the duplicate, uh, commits suicide. And so it's like this sense of like, okay, uh, Chris wants to relive that relationship, you know, and make it not go the same way it did. And then it goes exactly the same way it did. You know, it fights, he, you know, he gets his distance from her and then she kills herself. And that, and like every time, like he's, it's like, he's doomed to constantly relive that exact relationship you know it's not like he's getting a second chance he feels like he's getting a second chance but it continues to show that um that uh it's going to end the same way every single time yeah and i think that's where we kind of see the fallibility of memory um and i think that's also exemplified by the fact that she has to be near him at all times because she can't exist away from him because she's a creation of his perception of her and I think that really is kind of the meat and bones of this film. That and then we later get the sense that she is her own person. She's not the original Hari. She's something else. And is that valid? Is that a valid thing to be for her? And it's something that is grappled with greatly in this film. And I think that really is just the, like I said, the meat and bones of this film. Yeah. The And like, yeah, the the... You know, the original story of how she committed suicide and stuff, he had been transferred, you know, in his job to a different city. And so she she committed suicide when he was gone, you know, so he and then he came back and discovered her body. So it's like not only that he, she's tied to him in a memory sense, but also um, the when he leaves, it basically always is going to lead to her suicide. You know, it's this, is that how he remembers her? Like, that's, that's crazy, you know? Yeah, and, it uh, is. The The thing that gets me too is that um, Snout uh, seems to accept her after a little bit. Yeah. Like, um, Sartorius is like, you know, he's just, I'm a scientist, you know, this is stupid. She's not real or whatever. But Snout ends up just like talking to her and stuff. Like, she's actually a person and is... uh. You know, that that's interesting to me is that is that snout comes around to accepting her you know because he ends up being almost like a counsel to uh chris by the end you know chris the psychologist who was supposed to go there to figure out what's going on eventually yeah. he's the one who needs help yeah An- another thing suicide related that actually i found i noticed on this viewing that i hadn't really uh taken much notice to is that um when dr gabarian you know chris's friend who was originally on the station but then uh killed himself uh you know he left the he left the video message for chris and uh at the very end he uh prepares a syringe you know and it's so he 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 killed himself through an injection as well that's interesting i didn't think of that either and another thing that that... i didn't i didn't understand why i didn't see the connection but yeah i noticed it was a syringe as well i don't know if that was just you know the way to do it back then and that was like soviet union's way of suicide 
I think it's a deliberate. <laughs> I, I think it, I, I, I think it's a deliberate connection because he yeah. also had a gun. He also had a gun, but he didn't use the gun to kill himself. You know, um, and uh, another thing I noticed in that scene where he's in he's in um, Kabarian's room is also there's a there's a there's a there's a drawing of a horse like taped to the to the wall and you think back to like the one of the first scenes back on the back on the farm where like uh there's a horse and we're like very specifically shown this horse like it's important or something and it's not very clear what the horse means um and i thought it was interesting how that imagery of a horse just comes back up again and for for nothing very uh distinct other than like say maybe there's like ties to earth or basically there's it's like these ghosts everywhere you know everything reminds him of home you know um another another guest related thing too is the uh the woman that uh gabarian had show up as his as his guest why does chris see her she's walking around on the ship even though gabarian is dead and she leads him into the into like the freezer or whatever where the body is um which I guess maybe suggests, you know, what you were saying, Caitlin, where um, kind of like with Hari, she is her own actual being. You know, she's not just tied to a person. Okay, so or, yeah, I didn't get yeah. that that was the woman that was haunting, I'll say, Gabari, and I thought that was actually Hari. So I didn't realize that was a whole other character. Yeah, it was some little, it was some little girl, because uh, she like serves him tea as well. Uh, but yeah, something I, like I thought the way the way I understood it was that once they're created, like they're created, like they're created from your mind, but they are their own entity. Like it's like, um, like if you had a piece of clay and you told me to make it into something, even if you die, that piece of clay still exists. But not at yeah. first though, not at first because they had to be within proximity of their person who remembered them in order to exist because they are perception personified. Yeah, when 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 Hari first shows up and uh, and uh, Chris goes to talk to Snout, Snout is like, uh, that is her conception. That is your conception of her, you know. So mm -hmm. it is rooted in the memory, but it, they're definitely it definitely seems like they are separate entities ultimately. And um, one thing I one thing I looked up after watching it um, last night was um, so when Sartorius is like, we're made of atoms, they're made of neutrinos, and I looked up what a neutrino is and it's like one of the tiniest uh the tiniest particles uh that there is in the universe and it is the result of the decaying of matter hmm. comes about from the decaying of matter so it's like okay so the planet the ocean planet is conjuring these up basically um the decaying of matter so you think of memory as you know memory it's something real and then over time it just becomes more and more abstracted you mm -hmm. know yeah so like like the first time he sees hari she's wearing the the same stuff that she's wearing in the photo you know because like that's what he remembers of her it's been like 10 years you know what is what's left of his memory of her other than the fact that she looks like that in the photo they fought a lot um he left then she died so she reappears to him exactly like that and i feel like a lot of the challenge for the hari duplicate is that um is that what else is there to her being you know she she doesn't know herself because she's just there but chris doesn't seem to have the answers to that 
I mean, he's very caught up in himself. So, you know. Yeah. I think one negative I might have about this film is that I do wish that it wasn't. I understand why it's a very personalized story and why we get so caught up with Chris and Hari. But at the same time, we also know that these other characters are also getting guests. And I think at some point the film kind of moves away from that and focuses only on Harley, Hari. And I think I would have liked to see a little bit more about that and the different reactions to the guests. We know that Gabarian committed suicide, but I don't think I ever really fully understand why why he did that, what his motivations were there. Um, but we also see Snout and uh, Satorius also dealing with things in their own way. Satorius is a very scientific guy. Um, he's very much reacting to this by studying um, and trying to understand it from a scientific point of view. Um, but I would have liked to seen a little bit more of their kind of own reactions examined a little bit more and just maybe seen a little bit more from their visitors. I, I think that would have been interesting. I think part of the, I, I think it's, there's an implication that they are, um, that they are fully adapted to this situation, basically, mm-hmm. you know, that they've been on the station so long and they've lived, they've learned to live with the guests. And so, uh, they're caught up in their own little reality. I mean, Sartorius thinks he's like hot shit, but like he's also doing experiments on these. You know, there's that scene where Chris first visits him and stuff, and he opens the door, and then that that guy just like runs out of the room, pulls him back in. It's like he's doing experiments on the guests, so it's not like they are. Um, it's not like they're just peacefully living with them. With them, and I mean, like Snout has a guest in like a hammock or whatever in his room you know like they're they're used to this Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean and i mean like gabarian i think the implication at least the idea is that he committed suicide because he his sense of reality was broken by all of it i i don't think so so much of that because he said he was of sound mind like none of it really that part didn't it didn't seem like he went mad he said like i'm sound mind and this is yeah, I don't know. His was cryptic. Like his, I would have to have a second watch to see why he did what he did. Yeah, I think that's where it got me. I was I was having a little bit difficulty deciphering his point in his suicide video letter. Do you think that? Oh, good. Do you think? Do you think that maybe he like basically looked into the void a bit? You know, maybe like he's like he's there and the guests are showing up and they're feeding off of his memories, basically. And um, how do you go back from that? You know, I think I'd understand that if we later on in the film understood that the planet and what it was doing was nefarious in some sort. But I think it's kind of was the opposite. Uh, It takes this it kind of interprets this as a sense of communication or miscommunication between the planet and the space station. And I don't think it ever really personifies the planet as anything evil. So I guess for me, that's where I was a little bit disconnected. I was confused about where he was coming from. You know, another another um, another thing uh, that thing about like Burton, the pilot from the beginning, who did the who talked to that committee and stuff about his experience. You know, he's old now. He came back and he's got a and he's got a family, and it's like. His takeaway from all of his experience on Solaris was to basically appreciate what he had at home and uh and um 
you know, it's like uh, then tie that into, say, the the ending of the film, you know, where Chris seems to be going home and it turns out that he's actually on an island in the ocean. You know, it's like I see what you mean with saying like it's like almost uh, a communication of uh, uh I think Chris actually says a line towards the end of the film about like um, maybe the purpose of being of the planet is to is to teach them love, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it seems like the planet was trying to understand humanity. Um, And I think this is also very much where uh, I'm trying not to spoil Annihilation, but this is kind of where like the ending of Annihilation for me is very reminiscent of this film. Um, but I think that in general, like I said, I just didn't see it as any kind of evil personified or necessarily a bad thing. I think it was just a way of understanding humanity and reflecting humanity. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't think that Tarkovsky tries to um, put any kind of message there. I think it's largely up to interpretation. Yeah, Tarkovsky's Tarkovsky's main motivation was just to focus on on like the appreciation of the earth and life like that, you know, which would be the appreciation of all your memories and stuff like that. But I, th- I do think that the clear that there is a lot of, that there is room for interpretation there as mm-hmm. to what the, what the planet is really doing. By the way, if you, if you, if you want to see a good uh, comparison to Annihilation, you got to check out Stalker, the Tarkovsky film. It, huge, it's been on my watch list for huge, a while. I do really want to watch that one. Highly influential on Annihilation. Okay. And I would say probably my favorite Tarkovsky film. Okay. Um, That's what I read. I love Annihilation. I read that it was an influence for Annihilation. That's Mm -hmm. why I didn't mention Annihilation for this one. Yeah. But But I also know that there's themes in Stalker that he kind of starts with here. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times you do that with directors. Yes, no, definitely. Yeah. He's got a lot of running themes through all of his films. Um, So another another thing I noticed is... uh, mirrors there's a lot of mirrors throughout the film you know there's the scene where they're looking into the where he's uh looking into the mirror with hari and like explaining the backstory and everything and you think about um there's also a very brief scene in the sequence where chris is like sick and uh the camera he's in bed and then the camera pans over and the floor and the ceiling and the walls are all mirrors and uh there's and he's looking around the room and there's the like multiple haris and stuff uh walking around the room and you know it's like it i I think that there's things that i don't think it's supposed to mean anything in particular but i think that there's so many things that you could take away from that um in terms of like relating it to the the guests and like the duplication concept and you know cloning or like that sort of um that sort of thing. Yeah, and I kind of got that something that I was curious as to what your guys' interpretation was is the scene at the end when he's envisioning his mother and there's times where it's like between his mother and Hari, they're both kind of walking in and out of a scene and, and I was kind of getting confused at who was who for a little bit. And I'm like, why did Hari just change her face? Who is this? Um, and there's kind of like a mix-up and so I thought that maybe that had something to say about um his memories of the two of them and how they kind of overlap and i think that obviously i think that if you look at it that way you could have a almost kind of a feminist reading out of that i you know it's like his sense of law he has a sense of loss tied to both of them you know Mm -hmm. and uh it's and the thing is it's interesting because his his mourning of both of them is very hard for him to put into words 
it's just this like aching that he has this like sense of being incomplete and then when he comes into contact with them seemingly comes into contact with them again it's like it's like a missing link you know because his whole mood changes like the scene where his mother shows up you know he's all sick and everything and then she washes his arm and he like really softens up a lot Mm -hmm. and it's like like i said when i was analyzing his acting he's like carrying a lot around with him but he doesn't seem to consciously even know what it is yeah i also wondered if maybe it just had something to say about the nature of grief Uh, a lot of times if you lose someone uh, your grief is complicated because you're not only just grieving the person that you just lost but you're also grieving just because that feeling is brought up again you're grieving past losses so i kind of thought i I like the way that it did that brian what did you think I think the mirror shots were just to kind of give a reflection to himself because I, I feel like that's why he got sick is just he wasn't taking care of himself. He was continually taking care of Hari instead. And with his mother showing up, it could be that he he really needed somebody to, to take care of him because uh, yeah. he wasn't he wasn't doing it himself. And I mean, nobody's going to take care of you, you know, better than better than your mother or, <laughs> you know, uh, so they like so they say in really literature. So I think, yeah, I think there's just a lot of times like he just wants to be really, he just wants to be held. You know, it's um, kind of even see at the end with his father, like he just, he, he's trying to go on strong. And I feel like if there, if there was more to his character, not saying like they were, you know, it was lacking. It's just, you know, you're condensing it down to a film. So I wonder if reading the book, if there's more to his character that shows him taking on so much without you know, without look, without taking care of himself. Yeah. It's like he becomes disconnected from everything. The deeper he gets into it, you know, he once, once Hari shows up, I mean, he's, he's gone, you know, he's just, he's just deeper and deeper getting into this, uh, this, uh, almost like fantasy of, um, of, uh, say like almost an idealized life, you know, and he's looking, you know, he watches that film, the, the like, uh, home video or whatever uh, that his father filmed and some his stuff. And, um, you know, it's it evokes a lot of memories and stuff. And then that sort of image, all those images end up coming back up. You know, you've got the Hunters in the Snow painting looks a lot like those memories. And uh, his mother manifests in a way that looks a lot like in the video, you know, and it's like, um, and I mean, the ending, you know, he he didn't go back to earth he's still there hallucinating (laughs) yeah you know and uh i i love i love that final scene i it's because it's 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 uh in one way it's like kind of spooky in another way it's almost like kind of uh it's kind of nice you know yeah (laughs) i i think that the rain inside of the house is such a such a like striking image it was it definitely was and um a lot of Tarkovsky films have like this like image of like running water and rain and stuff like that and showers and stuff like that. And I, that's supposed to be like an elemental thing basically is where he was kind of coming from with that. But throughout the film, you know, you think in the very beginning when uh, there's the shot where he's like sitting outside and it's like pouring and you have the table shot, you know, with the, with the tea getting the rain all in it. And then I thought that that looked kind of similar to, uh, Later on, uh, he's got the shower running, and uh, that runs in a, in, in in on the station, and it runs in a similar way. And then 
uh, and then at the end there where it's raining inside the house, it looks a lot like the shower in the way that the water's falling because it's not falling everywhere in the house. It's like falling directly onto his father. And it's like, you know, I think there, I think there's just a poetry to that, you know, that sort of repetition of that imagery. Um, and I think it evokes something that, that, you know, I think is, is, is more interpretive ultimately. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, like I said, I like that there isn't a, I like that Tarkovsky doesn't try to pinpoint an interpretation at the end. Because, like you said, it is creepy, it's haunting, but it's also beautiful, and it's kind of this idea of a second chance, too, to form different relationships with the people around you. So it, it really is a wide gamut of feelings that you get from this, and from that imagery, too. And there's an irony, because his father is still alive on Earth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he has spent all this time, uh, you know, trying to appreciate those he's lost. And then he comes to the moment where he's like able to be back home basically and uh the only one that's there is the one who's actually still alive yeah (laughs) it's like oh shit (laughs) (laughs) but i think it's also implied that he doesn't have the the most warm relationship with his father to be in the film it's a little tense and so Mm -hmm. having that chance to kind of reinvent that relationship with someone new because this is essentially someone new it's interesting it's an interesting chance and then you compare it back to Hari, you know, where he was basically trying to relive the relationship, but doing it differently. You know, uh, he so he will if he theoretically is living on the planet and spending time with his with his uh, fake father or whatever. Um, will he do it differently, or will the same? tendencies the same things that are basically seem to be innate in their relationship end up bringing it down the same exact yeah that's a good question is there anything else uh that you want to touch on while we're in our spoiler section all right then let's go ahead and talk about whether or not we think that this film holds up i think it does yeah there's nothing really not really holding this back you know i mean yeah the cgi uh, especially that last shot I'm like, all right, but you know, 70s CGI, that's just how it was, or whatever, maybe it wasn't CGI, maybe it was something else. But other than that, yeah, it holds up. I, I definitely think it holds up. I mean, it has a sort of 70s aesthetic to it, but there's a timelessness to it as well, especially with how the, something about the score, the like synth score honestly feels really timeless. You know, like it, it you could, you know, I mean, Maybe it's because a lot of movies nowadays have a synth-based score. Yeah, it feels it feels just as um, it feels just as poignant, and um, I think, and I also think that there's just a lot to admire with the cinematography and the set design and stuff. That um, ha- it it there again, it has like this like timelessness to it. Um, and that's actually a thing about like a lot of Soviet films in general is that a lot of the 60s and 70s soviet films look way more modern than a lot of other countries films from the same period i don't even know exactly what it is but Hmm. um, was it like the technology being used or it's honestly i think part of it is just the style of the cinematography and production design 
just the just whatever whatever the trends and tendencies were yeah i agree i think that this film holds up and i think probably part of that is because it doesn't go too much into the sci-fi in a way that you're really using a lot of those effects um so it's it's it looks good and like you said it has that 70s aesthetic which i think is is timely and it's also just i think generally loved i think that the i think it's a beautiful looking film uh, it doesn't seem dated so i i definitely agree i think it holds up so now we're going to go into our overall rating of the film so we're going to go around and we're going to give a letter grade to this film and so it's going to be A and then E is our, our like our like lowest grade. And then if it's a film that is especially significant to you, you can also give it an S tier. You want to go first? You want me to start? Okay. Um I would give it and I would make I would, I would I would put it in S tier. Um I think that it is just a very powerful film. It's a beautiful film and it has a lot uh a lot uh to think about in it. And it um, it has moments that are some of the most powerful uh, moments in in any film I've seen. Just not in ways that I can even describe. Just in ways that it's lingered in my head for so many years. Just certain shots in the film just stick with me. And I think that there's something special about a film that can do that. And um, I think it's essential viewing for people especially if it opens them up to uh to films that they wouldn't have immediately been um interested in. Now you say this is an S tier, but I am curious as well where you rank this with other Tarkovsky's films because I know you said you like Stalker just a little bit better. Um I it's I it's difficult. I would say that I would actually probably put it behind Stalker, but um the thing is, he he only made seven films, and mm-hmm. all yeah, of them. Yeah, I know are, he has all, a small filmography. Yeah, he died young too, so all of them are great. Um, and over the years, whenever I revisit all of them, I you know my rankings on them kind of swap around a bit. Mm. But I would I would put it I would put it probably um, second or third, and I would say that uh, maybe like um, the mirror or um, the sacrifice would be um in the second spot if i was putting it three but i mean i I could put it number two as well you know yeah there it's a little interchangeable after a certain (laughs) depends on what day it is (laughs) yeah brian what's your ranking or your uh sorry go ahead (laughs) yeah this is number one out of the one movies that i've seen (laughs) of his yeah i was like not your ranking (laughs) because yeah i give this uh i think an a minus uh kind of thinking b plus but just, just it. I mean, so much of it is being raised up for just how technically well it was done. I, I do think that, you know, story-wise, I think it could have been sped up, sped up in the beginning a bit. And while I do like this story, I mean, I don't really place it as like the the tops, the the like the top of uh my favorite stories out there, like the best of stories. And I do think they could have probably said just a little bit more. Uh, especially if we, because I mean, I didn't have a problem with this runtime at all when we really got into it. So I think at that the beginning, if some was cut out, and we spent more time in the space station and going over the existential crisis and questions of philosophy. I, I would have liked the story more, but d- just technically, uh, the performances of um, 
was it Natalia? Natasha? Natalia. Some, Natalia. I was like, Natalia, and then I just went with stereotypical Russian name. But I, yeah, the, her performance and then just how well the director is able to make an eeriness and a haunting film that doesn't have a supernatural force or any kind of horror entity behind it is is just quite amazing. So I think, yeah, I feel comfortable saying A-. minus. For me... I think I'm going to give it an A, and my main reason for that is because of that section of the film where it genuinely terrified me, because I just don't, I don't get scared of films. Uh, I watch a lot of horror movies, and I find that a lot of the movies that do scare me a lot aren't horror movies. Uh, like I said, Annihilation, and then this one really had a sense of dread and terror for me that I just don't witness a lot in movies. And so that was really special to me. But also what came after, I really enjoyed the questions that it posed um, in this film. I think the only thing that might be holding it back a little bit is just um, wanting to see a little bit more from the other characters. And also I think sometimes some of the dialogue was a little bit on the nose thematically uh, with what themes were going in there. But I do think there's enough for this film that was left to interpretation, but I still had a lot of enjoyment out of it. I would say with the, you know, you feeling that true fear and that one, that's kind of, I see what you're saying that you say horror movies don't scare you, but I've seen you jump before, but I know what kind of scare you're talking about. It's yeah, like, I, like, more like a fear. Jump scares aren't like really a fr- fear. Yeah. Like jump scares is like, that's shocking, but I'm not afraid. This yeah. it was just like that, terror that only comes with like cosmic horror because i think it started to go in that direction for a little bit and like that was just genuinely terrifying like i felt on edge like i felt true terror and like i said i don't i don't feel that very often for movies same Uh, i mean there's a couple that i could list uh but this yeah there was one particular scene where where hari like she when she kind of comes into awareness of what she is of being a like mm-hmm. a uh, of not being actually the the real Hari that for me just I uh, like I felt some fear in that like they just being being this conjured up entity that just comes into awareness like the snap of a finger that that to me is horrifying mm-hmm. uh, it kind of reminds me I've been watching uh, the scavengers on HBO and there's a there's a plot line where it, it kind of looks into that it's I don't know. It's 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 hard to describe it, but it kind of gave me the the same kind of fear in that. It's also the same fear that, like, I think I mentioned it before. Like when there's underwater sections in video games, and it's just like vast, and you feel like something's watching you. Like that's what I got. That's the feeling I got. That I'm like, I really felt like while we were centered in this kind of compressed space station, there was just this vastness of space, and I just felt like something was watching like watching you at all times. Yeah, I was also I was almost going to bring up Subnautica, but I didn't really get that feeling cuz it wasn't so much of what was surrounding me, but I see how you would how you would get that feeling. Yeah, uh, it's that's, like that's the another, not knowing, but not knowing what it is. <laughs> I guess that's I don't know, I've been trying to figure out that that type of fear, but it it would kind of remind me a little bit of what I had with this like that true sense of fear, not just that oh you got, you know, you you get scared or watching a horror movie kind of fear oh my gosh and then that scene where it's like he sees it you can see that he sees something coming through the door but we don't see it we see him going to the door 
Like that was brilliant. I forgot yeah, to I don't even know that, why. that part was so brilliant and it was so terrifying to me. Which is a cliche in a horror movie, but for here it worked. Yeah, it really did work. But yeah, hey, <laughs> hey for me. <laughs> so Dan, thank you for joining us. I think this was a really good episode. <laughs> like I think we had a really good discussions here. Yeah, I, I found this very enjoyable. And I mean, I love I love talking about about this film and uh, Tarkovsky's other films because um, I don't know a lot of people a lot of people uh, just don't really dive into that. Yeah, and uh, I think that I think that people are missing out, honestly. So I enjoy. Yeah, having, I mean, I'm definitely excited to to watch his other films. I think Stalker and Mirror were the two that really caught my attention, but I wanted to look into. Oh yeah, you definitely should check them out. I would say those are two, those are two essential ones. Stalker, we may have to do an episode on. We'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Because actually, I didn't I didn't realize it. I didn't realize that one of the biggest games this year coming out, Stalker Two, is is based on the Stalker movie. Yeah, the Stalker video games are based on the movie. They're not even like directly based on it, but they're so they're heavily inspired by it. Interesting. You know? Yeah, so we yeah. have a opening. You know, like if we uh, yeah, it should be coming out this year. It's going to be big. Uh, whether cause just because there's been a lot that's been talked about and that game was also paused because of the war between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, so that's probably a good opportunity to watch that film. So we may be doing two of these, two of uh, two of his movies this year. That would be fun. Yeah, you hit me up, please. Also, yeah. when you do Vertigo. And when, when we do, do Vertigo, Vertigo, you gotta, yeah. you gotta yeah. contact that, that me That one will be that. interesting. <laughs> that one might be, that'll be interesting. Um... <laughs> Yeah. So, Brian, what is our episode next week? Our episode next week. Uh, while this film was kind of this film was kind of trippy, you know, kind of didn't really understand what was real and what was not. Almost going to have kind of the same thing going on in this next one, but it's going to be more drug induced instead of planet induced, and that is with the film Train Spotting. Uh, in addition, we'll be watching Train Spotting Two. However, the episode won't focus on it. It won't be like Blade Runner. And Blade Runner 2049 or the two Invasion of the Body Snatchers because uh, Train Spotting 2 isn't, there isn't that much to talk about in when it comes to its influence. But it is still, it is a legacy sequel. And if we were to have this podcast back in that day, it is a movie that we would have discussed in a bonus objective. And also, it is a one of the better legacy sequels out there. It's at least competent, regardless of your, your opinion. So I'm interested to see what you think about it, Caitlin. It's a movie that I've been wanting to do, uh, both Train Spotting and Train Spotting Two. We were gonna do it last year, and then uh, we switched it out for something, and I was a little, I was a little hurt. Uh, though I think I was the one that made the call anyway. I was like, yeah, we'll, we'll move it. Like I had, to, I had to take it out back to the woods, but nope. Now we we got our chance, and this will be our second Danny Boyle film and our first uh, Ewan McGregor film. Which is which is timely because he just had a a trailer for a movie come out that I need to watch. Did he? What movie? I don't. I forget the name of it. <laughs> like it came up on my preview and I saw his face and I was like, oh, I gotta I gotta check that out because I'm a he's one of my favorite actors as well. Yeah, I do like him a lot too. So in the meantime, while you're waiting for the next episode, Daniel, is there anywhere that people can reach you or take a look at your works that you would like to plug? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm pretty active on a music project right now. I have some music coming later this year. So, uh, projector fires on Spotify, Apple music, all that stuff. 
Um, and uh, if you want to see any of my film work, uh, the film House Within the Night is uh, it's on YouTube actually for free. Um, and uh, there may or may not be a director's cut later this year. Yeah, but uh, I'm being very quiet about that right now because uh, I don't want to hype it up too much in case if it takes me too long. So I say, should we but, cut that or we? <laughs> no, no, you can keep it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure we have everything linked in our episode description for uh, uh, projector fires and for we'll put the house of a night. Uh, we can link that as well. Cool. Well, that'd be great. And also, uh, now speaking of guests or guests speaking, but <laughs> we will have a guest on our next episode as well. Uh, Chris from Uncle Monster's Spooky Time Fright Hour podcast. Uh, so he'll be joining us for the train spotting conversation as well. I'm excited. And in the meantime, if you want to reach us, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OpSilverScreen, or you can find us on Facebook at Operation Silver Screen, but Twitter and Instagram, it's OpSilverScreen. You can also find us on our personal letterboxes if you just want to see what else we're watching throughout the week. Daniel, I don't know if you want to give yours, but mine is Coffee Spoon Kate, that's Coffee Spoon C-A-I-T, and Brian's is Swank Seal, that's capital S, capital S. Letterboxed. Um... Is my letterbox just my name? I think my letterbox is just Dan Offenbacher. <laughs> we can link that too if you want us to. <laughs> yeah, well, you can find me there. Yeah. I, I post there every time I watch something, so. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Do you review everything? No, if I feel like it. Okay, like, I was going to say, I, I post every one I watch, but I don't review everything. But I have been pretty good at trying to give at least a decent amount of reviews on there. I review if I feel like i have thoughts i need to get out mm-hmm. but like you know i it there's no there's no pattern brian on the other hand <laughs> hey i give star ratings all right <laughs> i give star ratings doing other things <laughs> god i'm sorry no i don't hey if you want to know like a in-depth review of a movie that i have on my letterbox that i've seen uh by all means contact me on the social media i'll let you know someone personally asked for it not you caitlin if anybody else does (laughs) all right all right actually though i did forget to rate one thing i am rating it right now (laughs) well until next time then i'm caitlin i'm bryant well i I won't be here next time but dan (laughs) (laughs) you'll be there you'll be in the future And in spirit, always. And in spirit, always in spirit. (laughs) See ya.